All right, so I've got a question for you guys. I've got a question for you adults. I have a question for you kids. What makes you happy? You just stop and think about that right now. What makes you happy? What brings you joy? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's the fact that you don't have any kids. I don't know. Your family. I know for myself, snowboarding. I know you guys. I see you in the back track, hunting, right? Makes you happy to some degree. BMXing, see you, Demo. Woodworking, slaughtering or castrating pigs. Jake, I, I don't know how that makes you happy. <laughs> but somehow that makes you happy. The, the fact that you can control your diet, you know, and get rid of all gluten in your life. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but that makes you happy. The fact that some of you are still young and you have fast metabolisms and you can literally eat anything you want, that makes you happy while the rest of us just kind of look back and judge you. <laughs> right? Your health, that makes you happy. Kids, your toys, your friends, what makes you happy? Now, I've got a question. If you can gather all the things that make you happy, all the things here and now that bring you joy, and in heaven you could have every single one of those things, you could have your pigs, your woodworking, and your bikes, and your hunting. You could have all the things that make you happy, but no God. Would it be enough? Would your heart be satisfied? I already heard an answer, and I, and I think that that is probably all of our responses, right? An adamant no, it would not be enough. We're quick to say that, but let me press you a little bit more, okay? Because if I said, you know, it's not enough that my wife cooks for me, cleans for me, packs me lunch. She does all those things amazingly. Those, those things are not enough. I need her. And yet I don't spend any time with her. I don't pursue her. I don't think about her. I don't long for her. You guys would say you're a hypocrite. You say that's not enough that you need her and not just the service, yet you don't pursue her. And so I want to ask you today, what is your pursuit of God like? Do you think about God? Do you long for God? Do you pursue the Lord? I think part of the problem is we put too much weight in the gifts of God and we neglect the giver of those gifts. We put too much weight in the gifts of God and we neglect the giver of those gifts. And church, this is dangerous. This is dangerous because what our minds and our hearts behold, that is what we treasure. And what we treasure in this world, that is what we become like. So if your mind is quickly to dwell and to behold the gifts of this world, if you treasure the gifts of this world and those alone, then you will become like the things of this world. They will own you. They will master you. But if we stop and we treasure and we dwell and we behold the greatness of God, we'll become more like Him. And so I want to ask you today, do you behold the things of this world or do you behold your God? I've been preaching for the last, I don't know how long, I lose track, preaching through the attributes of God. And there is much that we can apply from the attributes of God, but I have one overarching application. That is, we have thought about the holiness of God. That is, we have thought about God is love, and today we'll see that God is immutable. I have one overarching application, and it is this. Church, I want us to behold the greatness of God. I want us to stop and to pause. I want us to think about how awe and amazing and inspiring our God is. 
Our God is worthy of our worship as we've seen in Psalm 102. He is worthy for us to behold, but not just here and now, for the rest of our lives, to set our minds on Him. And you you could stop and think, like, how prideful of God that He would want us to behold Him and Him alone. But let me ask you a question. Imagine just for a second that you are in a desert. Shouldn't it be hard, right? I'm pretty sure we live in a desert. Imagine for a second we lived in a desert. It's dry. It's hot. Sounds like Benefi. There is no water source. Have you ever walked through a desert and there is no water source? Water is life. And without it, you will die. So you're in a desert that is dry and hot and no water. And imagine there is one well in that amazing, vast, great desert. What would you do that well? Man, I don't know about you, but I would put signs around it. I would put a spotlight on that well. I would tell all my friends that you could come and drink deeply from this well and have life. And my heart, though, would be tempted to travel far away from that well. I would stay close to that well. Because outside of that well, there's only death in that desert. Church, that is our God. Our God is the only source of life and joy and satisfaction. So as we look at God's immutability, let's behold our God. Let's stand in awe of who he, who he is and let's worship Him. Amen? If you guys have your handouts, we're going to look at three main things. The first is we want to define immutability. The second is we want to look up objections to immutability. And the third is what difference does immutability make for us? But before we do... Let's go before this great and holy God and let's pray. Father, we come before you and we are desperate, weak, and needy. We are in need of you now to pour out your spirit, to open hearts, to cause dull and deaf ears to hear the truth of your word. I pray, Father, that the preaching of your word would impact my heart and the hearts of those who are here. That would cause us to stand in awe of how great you are. That we would seek to worship you more with all our heart, mind, and soul. Amen. So if you guys have a handout, you can see that our our verse that we're going to read right now is is really just a a jumping spring. This This is a topical message. And I have to say that this is a topical message that is not exhaustive. There is much that can be said. Much that we can wrestle with when we think about the immutability of God. And so if you have questions, Jake loves to talk about this. Danny loves to talk about this. I love to talk about this. There are many in this crowd today that love to talk about the attributes of God. So don't leave here today without those questions answered. Let's sit and let's wrestle with how awesome our God is. So the verse for us today is Malachi 3.6. And it says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you... O children of Jacob, are not consumed. The first thing we want to look at is we want to define this word immutability. And as you could probably guess from our text today, it means to not change, but I kind of want to break up that word. If you see in your handouts, it's broken up immutable, right? And it's really helpful for us to break it up because it allows us to kind of have a better understanding of what that word means. So if you look down at your notes, M means the opposite of something. 
I don't know if you guys realize this. This was like an awe moment for me. I hate grammar, but I was like, oh, I never realized that. But you think about it, right? Possible, impossible. You add M to possible and it's the opposite of it. You think of mature, mature and M mature. You add M to it and it's the opposite of being mature. And so M means opposite. Mute, thank you, Dr. Salcido, he gave me this one. Mute, you can think of the teenage mutant ninja turtles, kids, mute. You remember these turtles? They weren't ninjas, they were docile, little, harmless little pets. Some of you guys have turtles as pets. And what happened to these pets? They mutated. They went from docile little pets to ninja mutated turtles. Really incredible. So you can think of M as opposite, mute as um, mutable, changing, and then able, which is ability. So if you think about immutable, it means that he does not have, he does not possess any ability within himself to change. And if we stop and think about it, that really is common sense, right? Like it, it really should be something that we all agree on. That God in himself has no ability to change. And the reason being is because God is God. He is perfect. So any change in him, if he were to change for the better, it means that he was not perfect. If he were to change for the worse, it means that he has now left his perfection. That he is no longer perfect. So any change within God would not make him God. And so it is pretty common sense. If you were to change for something greater, he is not God. And if he is changed for something worse, he can no longer be God. But God is perfect. And in his perfection, he is unchangeable. There is no reason to change within himself. And there is no reason to change outside of himself. God is immutable. And this is really common Knowledge. I think we all agree with this, but there is some opposition that has come against the mutability of God. There are some that would say that God changes. And in saying that God changes, in every one of these oppositions, what they do is they take God and they lesser God. And that is really the temptation we see in Genesis 3. And that is the temptation in our own hearts. To think of ourselves as more highly We exalt ourselves. We think of ourselves as being great and holy people. And in exalting ourselves, what do we do? We bring down God. And in bringing down God, we wrestle with the attributes of God. And we minimize His holiness. We minimize His love. And you'll see we minimize His immutability. So the first opposition is this. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. The first opposition is that God is relational. You see, they look at God and they say, God must be like us. Otherwise, he's someone that we can't have a relationship with. And so if he is like us, then he must change his mind. Because that's what we do. Something new happens, a new circumstance, a new situation, and we change our minds. We change our direction. And so God must be relational. He must be like us and he must change. The second opposition is that God is dependent. That somehow God is dependent on our actions. He sits and waits to see what Nick will do, what Danny will do. He sits back and when you act, then he acts. And he changes based on how we act. And so God is dependent on us. The third opposition is that God is becoming, not being. And for me, this is probably the worst. There are some who would say that God in eternity past was a mass of potential existence. 
that he was able to become anything. That in the process, God gradually, he heaves himself into actuality and God himself causes himself to become God. But at some point, he could become anything he wanted. That he is becoming God. Church, that is not our God. And how do we know that? How do we know that is not our God? It is not from logic. It is not from reason. It's not even from our own theology alone. It is from the Word and the Word of God alone. It is from the Word of God that we know who God is. It is from the Word of God that we know the character and the essence and the will and the purpose and the love of our God. And we see in Scripture that our God is relatable, but not because He minimizes Himself. Our God is relatable because He comes to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see our God is not dependent on human conduct, but He alone is the sovereign one. He does what He wants, when He wants, how He wants. And our God did not become God, but He was God. He is being. He alone is the self-existent one. Church, make no mistake about it. Our God does not change. He cannot change for the better, for He's already perfect. And He cannot change for the worse. And I want to look at three areas in which God does not change. You could follow these in your notes. The first is that he is immutable in his essence. Immutable in his essence. Exodus 3. You guys remember Exodus 3? Moses is told that he's going to go back to Egypt, that he's going to be the forerunner, that he's going to be the representative for God, that he's going to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, man, I can't do that. You don't know me. I can't speak. And then finally he gets the courage and he says, well, who should I say sent me? What is your name? And we see in Exodus 3.13, Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent to me and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am am has sent me to you i am what does that mean his name denotes exactly who he is his name i am tells us exactly what his nature is a name that shows that he alone has being of himself if, if you stop and you think about it you remember what paul said first corinthians i am what i am by the grace of god and each of us here, we must say the same exact thing. I am what I am by the grace of God. Do you see the difference? We say that I am what I am and what I am, I am becoming more like that. I'm becoming a man by God's grace that is more humble, more lovable, more honoring. But I'm becoming those things by the grace of God. I'm dependent on God. And each of us here are dependent on God. If it wasn't for the grace of God, what we would be coming would be far worse. But by God's grace, we are becoming something more like God. But God alone does not say, I am what I am by. He says, I am what I am, period. He alone is not dependent on anyone or anything. But He's independent. He alone is self-existent. 
He did not actualize himself from an empty mass into God. No, he has always been God. From before time began, he was the great I am. And for all time, forevermore, he shall always be the great I am. Church, our God is self-sufficient. There is nothing that he needs, nothing that pushes on on him that causes him to change. He is self-sufficient and therefore all-sufficient. Church, he is all-sufficient. That is why scripture would tell us that he alone is the creator and sustainer of all things. That he alone holds all things together in the span of his hand. And I want you to think about that. That as he holds all things in the span of his hands, as he holds creation together, Psalm 102, which Danny read today, reminds us of the greatness of God, reminds us of how unchangeable our God is. If you look at it, it's in your handouts. It says this, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain the same. In verse 27, you are the same and your years have no end. If you think about this, as Californians, we get this, right? Once every 10 years, what happens? What seems so stable, so secure, the ground underneath our feet starts to shake, right? And some of you guys, I've seen it, you just lose it, right? I witnessed my mom just pop up in the morning, not even realizing what she's wearing. Mom, forgive me. And just run out of the house. Yelling, earthquake, earthquake, earthquake. Like when, when the ground underneath us shakes, we lose it. We feel like there's nothing stable in our, in, our, in our lives in that moment. What do we grab onto? And what the psalmist, what David is telling us is that all these things, that the earth itself and the heavens above will pass away. That what you assume to be the most steadfast thing in your life, it too will change. It too will perish, but he will remain the same. He is the same, and his years have no end. Church, he is a rock. You look around, we, we have some rocks here, right? It's Menifee, so if you dig a little bit, you might hit a rock, right? And if you were to pick up that rock in your hand, and you squeeze that rock as hard as you can, with all your strength and all your might, you try to change that rock. You try to form that rock into something different. What's going to happen? The rock will not change. Your hands might become callous, start bleeding, might get some scrapes, but the rock itself will not change. And this is why scripture tells us that our God is a rock, for he does not change. Herman Bovnik a Dutch reformer in the 18th century said this, the idea of God itself implies immutability. Neither increase nor diminish is conceivable with respect to God. He cannot change for the better or worse, for he is the absolute, the complete, the true being. Becoming is an attribute of creatures, a form of change in space and time. But God is who he is eternally transcendent over space and time and far exalted above all creature. Church, make no mistake about it. What God is today, he has always been. And what God is today, he shall always be for our God is an unchanging God. But not only does he not change in his essence, he does not change in his perfections, which is our second thing we want to look at. Verse 
And church, this is good news. When we think that God does not change in his perfections, I know you people, and some of you, by the grace of God, you have grown more loving. You have grown more patient. You have grown more kind, and your spouse just wants to say thank you. Your kids, thank you. All of us, thank you for changing. But you know what? Even in our best moments, do we not fail? I know in my best moments when I want to be so loving to my kids, when I want to instruct my kids, those are sometimes the moments when pride and anger and frustration creeps in, when there's an inconsistency in my character, when there's an inconsistency in my actions. But church, there is no variation in our God and how He feels or acts. It's in your handouts. You can look at James 1.17. It says this, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. There is no variation in him. There is no shadow in him due to change. He is pure light. All that he is, he is perfectly. And he cannot act outside of that. There is never a moment when the everlasting Father becomes an everlasting tyrant. He always does and acts according to his perfect attributes. Our God is constant in character. Well, we are inconstant in character. And because of that, it is good news that we can trust that he is unchangeably good, that he is unchangeably kind, that he's unchangeably loving and just and powerful and all-knowing and all-present. Spurgeon said this, You can take any one attribute of God and you can write the words Semper Edom on it, which is always the same. Whatever perfection of God you can think of, then it may be said whether in the dark past or the bright future, He is the Lord and He does not change. So He does not change in His attributes. The unchangeableness of God means that He, we can rest securely. That he's going to act perfectly according to his perfections, according to his perfect attributes. And that there is no variation or shadow of due to change. But not only is he unchangeable in his essence, not only is he, uh, is he unchangeable in his perfections, he's unchangeable in his will. You see, when we think of our will, our will changes, right? And why does it change? We think of something new. We gather new information. We have some new knowledge. Something outside of ourselves impacts us to change our will, to change our direction. And this is good, is it not? Because we are finite creatures. You know, as I I thought about this, I, I don't know about you guys, but my kids are always quick to point out when I change, right? And it's usually only when that change doesn't work out in their favor, right? If I told them that we're going to go take care of errands and all of a sudden, you know what? Let's go for ice cream. Yeah! Excitement, joy. But if I told them, hey, we're going to watch a movie tonight, and then life gets busy, circumstances happen, and I've got to change my mind, and you know what? No movie tonight, it's too late. But dad, you said, dad, you promised. And, and I love, I just asked my son this last night, can I change my mind? Yes, but is it always good? Oh, well, I don't know, that's a different question. But can we change our minds? Yes, we do, and it's good. I think about this all the time. I I open up a new item and what happens? I'm so eager to start building that item. 
toss the instructions. I don't need those things. Start building it. And when it doesn't look like the picture on the box, I'm like, all right, let's rethink these steps, right? Let's change. Where are those directions? We change because of new information. But that is not our God. Numbers 23 says that God is not a man that he shall lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will not he do? Or has he spoken and will not he fulfill it? There is no lack of foresight. With God, there is no lack of discernment. He is not like us that he should change his mind. God never says, well, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? You guys say that? No. There is no change of mind because he sees the end from the beginning. He knows all things. He is perfect in his knowledge. And there is no knowledge in our God. And not only is there no, knowledge, no lack of knowledge in our God, there is nothing outside of our God that causes him to change his will. And that is what Job tells us. He is unchangeable. Who can turn him back? It's a question that it's meant to lead you to the answer. No one. No one can turn him back. What he desires, he does. He is not like us. He is unchangeable. And what he desires, he does, and nothing can thwart his plan. He alone has declared the end from the beginning. And Isaiah tells us that his counsel, his counsel should stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Not only does he declare the end from the beginning, but he promises that he will accomplish that end. He does not change. And so what does it mean that God is immutable? Well, it means that God is unchanging. And that he's unchanging in his essence. That he's unchanging in his perfections. And he's unchanging in his will. And right about now, if you guys know your Bible, you're probably thinking, yeah, but doesn't the Bible say that God repented? Now, maybe you're not thinking that, but now you are. Doesn't the Bible say that God grieved? How do we reconcile those? If we say that God is unchanging in his essence, his perfections, and his will, yet scripture says that God grieved, how do we reconcile those ideas? Because that sure sounds like a change. Well, I'm glad you guys asked that. And there are several objections you can look at through scripture. I'm only going to deal with one for the sake of time. But if you guys have more questions, more issues, again, please don't leave here without having those discussed. Talk to Danny or Jake or myself or whoever brought you. But the one objection we want to look at, it's in your handouts, 1 Samuel 15. If you guys are familiar with this, this is when God appoints Saul to be king through the prophet Samuel. And he tells us because of the wickedness of the Malachites. He's been patient with the Malachites for generations and generations, yet they continue to live in wickedness. And so because of their wickedness, he tells Saul, the new king, that he's going to go and destroy all the Malachites. To not bring anything back, but to destroy the livestock and to destroy the king and to come back with nothing. And what does Saul do? He goes and he disobeys God. He destroys the Amalekites, but not everything. He takes the best cattle for himself. He takes the best livestock for himself. And he brings back the king. And in 1 Samuel 15 11, it says this, The Lord said, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. In verse 35, he says, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted. What does this mean? 
What does this mean that the Lord regretted? Does, does it mean that he stopped and goes, man, I didn't see that one coming. Made a mistake there. Well, back to the drawing board. Is that what it means? Does it mean that he lacked the foresight to know that Saul would disobey him? Does it mean that he's changed his mind? What does it mean? And so you're probably sitting there a little bit perplexed and confused, but trust me, the biblical authors are not confused. And so a principle that we want to apply here is that we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. It's a basic rule of hermeneutics. That when we look at an obscure passage and we think, what does it mean that the Lord regretted? We go to a less obscure passage and we allow that to shed light on that obscure passage. And so what we want to take note of is verses 28 and 29. And this is beautiful because under the inspired inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as Samuel is writing this, he says, the Lord regretted. And then he says later on, the Lord regretted, but smack dab in the middle, we find this verse that I believe adds clarity to what we're wrestling with today. So he regretted, he regretted, and right smack in the middle, verse 28. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to his neighbor of yours, who is better than you. Speaking of Saul, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regrets, for he is not a man that he should have regrets. You can stop and think, like, wow. Okay, Samuel's really confused. The Lord regretted. The Lord is not man that he shall regret. He never regrets. The Lord regretted. No, Saul is not confused. With perfect clarity and inspired by the Spirit of God, he knows exactly what he is saying. And what he's doing is he is ascribing to God human pathos, emotion, in order to communicate what Samuel and Saul were experiencing. Now, I don't know if you've had a sip of coffee this morning. If you haven't, reach down, grab it, take a sip. Dave, that is your second bang. Wow. All right. I want your brains turned on for this, okay? This takes a little bit of focus here. But scripture does this all the time. This is a common literary device. This is a common literary device that is given to us to help us to understand God who is spirit and transcendent, right? We ascribe to God human parts. The word for that is anthropomorphism. We ascribe to God arm, nose, ear. You could think of Isaiah in Isaiah 59. It said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear, but is your iniquities that separated him. Stop. Does God have a hand? Does he have an ear? I mean, some of you probably picture God like an old man with a gnarly Mr. Dietrich beard, but that's not God. Scripture tells us that God is spirit and we worship him in spirit and in truth, right? That he is not like this, but what scripture does, it ascribes to God human parts so that we can understand God in a different way. Not that he changes, but we change as we think about God. So we ascribe to him a hand or an ear. In the same way, we ascribe to God human emotions. This is anthropopathism. We ascribe to God regret, grief, and repentance. But does that mean that God actually regretted, repented, or grieved? No, it does not mean that God did those things, but we ascribe to him human emotions so that we could understand the circumstance and what is taking place. 
so we can understand what is happening with those that are interacting with God. And I, I, I heard this an amazing illustration. You think of light. What is light? It's a bunch of sound waves. It's perfectly shining out. But if you drop a prism right in the middle of that light beam, what happens? Some of you guys remember this from junior high science class. What happens? Prism in the middle of light. You guys don't remember this, huh? Wow. All kinds of amazing colors come out of the other end. You see violet and red and orange and green. Has that light changed at all? That light has not changed. It's the same waves going through that prism. But how we see that light, how we experience that light has changed because of the prism that has now dropped down in the middle. And the same is true with our God. He does not change. But what changes is the circumstance, the situation, the people interacting with God. And as that drops down in the holiness of God, the perfections of our God, what we see is different. And in our frailties, we're trying to understand that difference. As we understand His love and His justice and His mercy and His grace, we ascribe human emotions. And at times, these words fail because when we say God is love, that is entirely different than what we mean as love. When we say that God repented, that is entirely different than what we say we repent. And so, too, when we say that God grieved, it is entirely different than what we mean when we say we have grieved. Church, make no mistake about it that God does not change. We ascribe to Him human emotions, but what's changed is not God. It is us. It is the situation. It is the circumstance. He alone is transcendent and unchanging. And Samuel had it right. That God is not a man that he should lie. Nor is he a man that he should regret. If that answer has left you unsatisfied, well, I'll just pray for you. Okay. No, seriously though, if you have questions, please come and talk to us. But I want to move on. What difference does immutability make for us? Well, the first difference is those for, who are unbelievers. And it's a warning to unbelievers. You know, when I was in high school, I remember taking a hard test. I don't know if you guys remember this, but you just know you bombed that test. And you talk to your friends and are like, man, that was the hardest test I ever took. We bombed it. What was your hope inside? That the teacher would grade on a curve. All right. Oh, man, I loved when my teacher graded on a curve because that means my D magically became a B, right? That means a lot of classes that I failed, I magically passed. And God's immutability is a warning for us today. There is no curve. There is no second chances. That when you pass from here, you will stand before the judgment seat of God. And if you have believed in the Lord as your Savior, if you believe that Jesus Christ lived that perfect life, that life that you can never live, That he went to the cross and on that cross, he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. If you believe in that, then you shall be saved. If not, I would beg you and I would plead with you. Throw yourself on the immutability of God. Throw yourself upon this rock. Confess your sin and believe in him. Because church, there will be no second chance. The second practical point is that the mutability of God is comforting for believers. It is an amazing attribute that up until this study is probably one of the last attributes of God that comes to mind. And I say that shamefully because it is a great attribute of God that without this attribute, there really is no hope in life. 
There really is no hope in life. Not only does it mean that God is God, but think about this. The immutability means that God is knowable. That we have comfort knowing that as we come to the word of God, we trust and we believe that the same God who walked with Adam is the same God we worship today. We have comfort knowing that the same God that was the the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the same God we worship today. We have comfort that the same God who danced, who David danced as he brought back the Ark of the Covenant and worshiped God is the same God we worship today. The same God that used the faithfulness of Mary and Elizabeth. The same God that though Peter denies him three times, he redeems Peter and uses him to save 3,000 through the proclamation of the gospel. The same God who has promised to make all things new. Church, this book is a thousand, thousands of years old, right? The youngest book in this is still 2,000 years removed from you. What comfort do you have that is the truth? And it is this, that our God is immutable, that he does not change. He's not a man that he should lie. And if he does not lie, then what he has spoken through the word of God is true. And not only is it true, it shall remain. And that's why Christ says not one jot or tittle will pass away because this is God's immutable word because it is the word of God. And so we can know him. But not only is it comforting because we can know God, it is comforting because we go through a life that isn't constant like the winds. They come and go. The same thing happened last time, but last time I think there was lots of water coming down, thunder, lightning. It's crazy. We go through life full of inconstants, full of unchanging circumstances. We ourselves are inconstant. Our marriage is inconstant. Our kids are definitely inconstant. Friendships are inconstant. Work is inconstant. Health is inconstant, constantly fluctuating. Financial stability is inconstant. Our passions and our emotions are inconstant. I was reminded this week that life is a vapor here today and gone tomorrow, inconstant. As you think about all the inconstants around you, it is enough to drive you mad. Is it enough? To, it is enough to drive you to be anxious and fearful and depressed if he were not constant. Church, He is immutable. He is our rock. He is the only constant in our life. And so we must cling to Him. And if you are sitting here today and you're thinking, well, that's not me. Everything in my life feels constant. My life is good. It is real good. If that's you guys. Then I just, praise God. That's awesome. I'm happy for you. Okay, I'm happy your house didn't flood. But let me ask you a question. What will be the anchor of your soul when trials come? What will be the anchor of your soul when trials come? Church, we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time He may exalt you. We must cast all of our anxieties on Him who is constant. We must cast all of our anxieties on Him who is the rock, who is immutable because He cares for you. And lastly, church, 
This is important for us to consider because it is praiseworthy. It is praiseworthy. Our God is transcendent. He is high and lifted up. He is unlike us. A God that we have seen is holy, holy, holy. A God that is love. A God that is unchanging. And as we consider the fact that God is transcendent, that He is a God that is high and lifted up, it is good news that God is also near to the broken and contrite. That He is near to those who are humble. And He is near through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as we think of Christ as immutable second person of the Trinity, as He is the one who has created and sustains all things, when this Jesus hung on the cross, and His blood dripped on the earth. It was the God-man who hung there. The immutable God. The same God who carries the world on His everlasting shoulders. The same God who holds in His hands the keys of death and hell. Jesus did not change in His incarnation. He did not change in His death. And He does not change in His resurrection. He is, as Hebrew tells us, the same yesterday, yesterday today, and forevermore. And not only do we know the Father through the Son who is immutable, we know God through the Spirit who is immutable. The third person in the Trinity who dwells within us. Christian, that is great news. That the immutable Spirit of God dwells within you. And as He dwells within you, He is the guarantee of your salvation. He is the seal that is upon you until the day of redemption. And the Spirit assures and comforts our hearts that every promise in Christ is yes and amen. That because of the unchangeableness of our God, we don't have to doubt His promises. That when Scripture tells us that there is nothing that can pluck us out of His hand, there is no sin, no evilness, no wickedness, no devil that could pluck us out of the hand of God. We can believe that to be true. We can trust the immutable God. We can trust that He alone will accomplish what He has promised, for He alone declares the end from the beginning. And He alone does not change. So I ask you again, what makes you happy? What satisfies you? How foolish it is to set our hearts only upon that which shall perish. How foolish it is to set our hearts only on that which is inconstant. Let's set our hearts on the one who is constant. Let's set our hearts on the one who alone is immutable. And let's praise Him in song. And not just in our singing, but let's praise Him with our lives. Let's proclaim His glory to the nations. Amen. I want to close with reading of God's Word in Jude 24-25. through 25. It says this, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Church, behold your God. Our God is an amazing God. And we have seen that our God is a God who's holy, holy, holy. And our God is a God of love. And our God is unchanging. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you that you are a rock. That you alone are unchanging. 
that you alone are immutable. And I pray, Father, that our thoughts and our attention, our focus would be on that. That when life is constantly changing, when anxiety creeps in, when depression creeps in, I pray, Father, that we would be more stable, not because of our strength, not because of our wisdom, not because of our ability, but because we are clinging to you. Because we are casting all of our cares and anxieties upon you who care for us. Father, I pray that you would press this message upon our hearts and our minds so that you might be honored and glorified in all that we do. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.